Hello and welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. Most people are familiar with the acronym NIMBY. It stands for Not in My Backyard. And it's a powerful force in many communities against development projects and often against change of any kind. But a new countervailing movement is pushing back on NIMBYism. YIMBYism, which stands for Yes in My Backyard, is an effort taking root in some communities, including several in and around Boston. Those involved in the YIMBY movement want their community to be more open and welcoming of housing development because they think greater density can make for more vibrant communities and because they believe more housing construction will temper the high cost of housing, making communities more affordable and welcoming to all. Some applaud it as a welcome break from the naysayers, but the YIMBY message is not always warmly received. Last fall, a YIMBY chapter was started in Boston's Jamaica Plain neighborhood, and this week's podcast is a conversation with two members of J.P. YIMBY, Meg Wood and Eric Herrett. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, tell us, Eric, uh, what is it that uh, YIMBYism is saying yes to? Um, housing for everybody. Um, uh, we put together a, uh, an organization that tries to push back on requests from neighbors and other local activist groups, um, shutting down housing construction, keeping buildings short, uh, sacrificing housing units in place of more parking. Um, we believe that everybody who wants to live uh, in a city should be able to do so and to do so affordably. And uh, our group focuses on trying to keep housing costs down by allowing construction of housing where it's desired and doing what we can to help keep the cost down and at the same time also uh, maximizing the actual number of um, below market rate affordable units that get built uh, when a construction process uh, project actually goes forward. Um, a lot of times... Uh, people get overly focused on things like uh, affordability percentages um, and lose sight of the uh, the actual number of units that gets built. And that's kind of, you know, it seems like a, a sidetrack, but it uh, ends up being a main part of uh, what, we, what we spend our time focusing on. And so there's a real belief here in the uh, sort of fundamentals of supply and demand that, that's sort of a key to affordability and making communities more... Uh, open to all is to boost the supply. Is that is that fair to say? You wouldn't think that such a basic tenet of economics would be controversial, but essentially, yes, uh, there are far fewer units of housing going on the market than there are people who want them, and that is definitely going to yield sh- uh, lead to shortages, no matter how you cut it. And those shortages yield lead to higher prices, and it's our job to try to fix that. And, and Meg, what is what is it that you're interested in saying yes to, or in, and sort of what drew you to uh, the JPMB uh, chapter? Well, most simply, it's just watching or helping Boston grow instead of watching stagnation, which we see in the permitting process, and we see with a lot, a lot of our neighbors struggling to achieve, um, you know, their goals in their housing, and also developers struggling through the same thing. And. So talk about, I mean, uh, this issue of the role of developers. Now, obviously, they are kind of the key players. They're the ones who build housing. Um, the, you know, developers have, uh, frankly, kind of a bad, get a bad rap. They have a bad reputation. They're sort of the, the greedy, rapacious uh, ones swooping in, trying to, you know, 
exploit communities and, and maximize their their profits. Um, I mean, and, and from what I've read, the YIMBY movement is trying to, uh, I guess, change a little bit of that image and sort of how how communities should view developers and and what their role and the potential uh, good that they can do for communities. Is that uh, fair to say? Are you guys the are you guys kind of you know developers uh, best friends on the ground, or how would you put it? It's interesting. Um, I think of the developers as being, you know, they're sort of like your local fishmonger or a supermarket. Uh, it's their job to provide a service, and they will obviously try to maximize their profit while providing that service. Um, when we are fighting a battle about building more or fewer units or building more or fewer parking spaces, uh, it almost always ends up being the case that the EMBs are in the room defending the developers. Um, but this isn't automatically the case. You know, if developers show up in our neighborhood and want to build uh, ugly counter-urbanist buildings that take over the sidewalk or shrink the sidewalk, make, make communities less pedestrian-friendly, less walkable, um, uh, you know, developers often show up and ask to do those things, and we push back on it. I see developers as bringing in resources, and it's about negotiating what resources make sense for the community in the neighborhood in, in, in general. Um, I can think of an example of a recent building that is very progressive in its design. Um, you know, it it, ha- it met the sort of criteria about sidewalks. It, it brought a sort of activity to the streetscape. It was on a very critical corner in a very critical neighborhood in Jamaica Plain. And it was resounding no's, you know, lots and lots of no's. Instead of a negotiation process, it's just outright no. And in fact, now this developer is um, likely to be um, slapped with a lawsuit uh, from from the neighborhood because of specific uh, sort of issues around the variances that were given to him. But to me, I see that as an opportunity. There's an opportunity to work with a developer to sort of indicate what the community needs and what the community wants. And instead, they're faced with a hardline no. And that, that just doesn't result in anything beneficial for the community. I can think of another vacant lot where a building was proposed from a very well-accomplished um, neighbor who is also a developer. He lives in JP. And it's a dirt lot. It is surrounded by chain-link fence that is providing no public good other than parking. And this developer, again, is being, being sued by neighbors because they don't want density. They don't want this building to be built for their own personal or, you know, political reasons. Right. I mean, I think this is an important thing uh, to consider, especially in a neighborhood like Jamaica Plain, is that, you know, I think a lot of people imagine developers to kind of be these big national corporations that don't have any of their um, local interests at heart. And certainly in some neighborhoods that is the case but a lot of the anti-housing movement is fairly undiscriminating about this, and many of the projects currently under on, underway in JP are actually uh, headed by locals. Um, all, all of the ones, in fact, along the Washington Street corridor that I'm aware of are by organizations that are at least based in Boston, and many of them are small private builders. Um, you know, I think most of the time when the project is a bad one, it's it's more ignorance than malice. But honestly, I think the only reason why uh, uh, the the only reason why uh, we end up fighting with uh, the neighbors over it is 
purely because of height and because of density and because of parking. And, and somehow affordability got wrapped into this conversation. Um, you know, the sort of, Eric alluded to this a little bit earlier about uh, focusing on the percentages, which is, you know, slightly defeating because there's a, there's a new sort of guideline that was put out for this particular neighborhood in Jamaica Plain that's requiring 25% affordability. And there's, you know, math formulas that sort of determine uh, other rates of affordability that are required. But, um, you know, this one particular building we were referring to was at 17%, and that was off-putting to a particular group in our neighborhood. And what they were fighting over was one to two units of affordability. This wasn't, I mean, when you look, when you take the percentage away and just talk about the number of units, so now that there's an argument around this building, they're losing all the affordable units that could have been built in order to try to get one more to two more units. Right. So you think you're getting a little bit pushed from people who want us, who are kind of focused on the affordable housing component, and then on the other side, people who are kind of the classic NIMBYs who want to see nothing, you know, built in in, in many cases, or or something much more modest. Yeah, there's kind of an uh, unholy alliance that exists, uh, or a trifecta, I guess I would call it. Um, on the one hand, you have uh, you know, a number of, I would, I would call them like genuinely concerned affordable housing activists in the neighborhood that, um, that, that we don't necessarily agree on how the economics of it works, but they are genuinely seeking uh, higher percentages of affordability and they are concerned that, um, I believe erroneously, that uh, adding market rate units to the pool will actually drive out existing residents. Um, and then on the exact opposite side, you have people that really don't, you know, they might, they might superficially talk about their concerns for affordability, but the paramount concern for them is that nothing is built that blocks their sunlight um, or adds traffic or, to, or parked cars to their street. Um, but then there's an awful lot of people in the middle that I think, you know, are are perfectly happy to see nothing get built and they're maybe okay with things getting built as long as uh, they're very small. Um, and the unholy alliance that gets created is people that realize that by asking for a higher percentage of affordability, it effectively kills projects. And so you have the, the people who would prefer to see nothing banding together with the people who would prefer to see more affordability uh, and happily arguing for percentages that everybody that studies the issue professionally seems to agree will only just cause housing construction to grind to a halt. Um, and in fact, in Jamaica Plain, after the J.P. Rocks process, which was this was a city sort of overseen zoning, rezoning, or master plan process. It, yeah, yeah, it was heavily heavily uh, influenced by the community, which is a good thing, and it should continue for any future sort of um, you know iterations of it. But sorry, Eric, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh no, that is a, a very important point. Um, yeah, the the community process. Um, you know, it, it yielded, uh, as you might expect, um, when when the community was asked what they wanted to see in uh, future development along the Washington Street corridor. It was a corridor study is what the city uh, called it. Um, affordability absolutely topped the list. Um, walkable communities, uh, you, you know, trees, wider sidewalks, uh, all things that I think m most urbanists, uh, in including myself, uh, could easily agree we needed. Um, 
what the plan was a little bit short on was like, how do we achieve these things? And that part ended up being really where the rubber met the road in terms of policy because uh, uh, people successfully lobbied the city to shorten building heights um, and and to push up affordability requirements. And unfortunately, those two things in concert are pretty effective at making projects uh, not pencil out. Um, and, and, as it, and as it happens, since the J.P. Rocks plan was put forth, um, we have not had any uh, Article 80 project reviews go forward. So the pro- These are the larger development projects in the city. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to be clear, the city refers to them as small project reviews because they start at anything over 10 units. But um, generally speaking, they are the way that uh, subsidized affordable units get built in the city of Austin right. as part of private market so, rate development. So talk, you know, both of you a little bit about what, uh, how your group, the JP Yimby chapter, has been received in the neighborhood um, you know what have been the dynamics? I know Meg, you were telling me before that you are on the you're on the uh, local neighborhood, neighborhood council, council mm-hmm. and its zoning committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean that's where a lot of these uh, debates play out as well. Yeah. So what uh, you know? How has the introduction of the Yimby perspective uh, been received? Well, I would say that Yimbys. Sorry, Eric, but again. The Yimby culture are tend to be individuals who are very comfortable with the idea of the future. The idea, the future being carless society, um, sort of technology driven uh, changes in the community, and I think that there is sort of a fracturing, natural fracturing that has occurred in my observations, um, specifically on the neighborhood council with folks who've been here for a long time and who who made huge changes to JP, especially with the orange line, um, and I think that you know that. Our receiving of our message, um, there hasn't been a lot of warmth, um, and there hasn't been a lot of reaching across the table, as they would say. Um, so they've said of, NIMBY to YIMBY, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, I think there's there's good hearts across the board. Um, I think that we could do a better job of sort of messaging ourselves. We're still very new since October 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're working on that. And I think we are trying to achieve at least an opportunity to take an audience um, with uh, individuals who don't agree with us to explain better because the, the, the perception is that we are, you know, in the pocket of the developers or have interest in gentrification which, of course, is, is not true. We live in Jamaica Plain. <laughs> we would live elsewhere if we believed in gentrification. So the, um, the interesting thing is we are not really expecting that we'll get a lot of positive response in these neighborhood council meetings. You know, all across the country, councils like that are mainly a vehicle for older, wealthier homeowners to complain about the projects going in in their neighborhoods. Um, and they're often not representative either demographically or in terms of socioeconomic status of the broader communities they work in. Um, so one of our hopes as an organization is that we can draw attention to the fact that, you know, if you survey residents of Jamaica Plain at random, develop uh, support for density and new development is actually quite a bit higher than the almost universally negative response that it gets in these neighborhood council meetings. I mean, we attend the meetings so that we can make sure that our voice is heard and so that we can keep abreast of uh, the current affairs. 
Um, but I honestly think our greatest successes are going to be to uh, raise the voices of people in the community who might be younger um, and less fortunate and not able to spend, you know, two to three hours of every weekday night uh, going to a meeting to listen to people talk about zoning. Um, and I'm particularly interested in helping politicians who know that they're that they cannot just stymie development and hope to see um, home prices go down feel a little bit more comfortable about proposing things like up zonings and uh, new projects in uh, otherwise low density neighborhoods uh, without facing huge political backlash mm-hmm. but, but that that said sorry I think yeah. it is important for Yimby uh, members and certainly representatives uh, to continue to participate in government activities, whether it be very hyperlocal, like a neighborhood council, or if it be a little bit broader than that, um, it's just important to have that diversity of thought on on such in such groups. Um, you know, sometimes it can feel a little lonely, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. <laughs> And I do think it actually gives you a lot of value to hear the true opinions of um, some of the uh, other side, as they may say mm-hmm. they are. And, uh, I mean, in terms of areas where there is room for development, I guess I'm struck by the fact that I know there are several uh, YMB groups in the Boston area, but when you sort of track where they are in Cambridge, Somerville, Jamaica Plain, uh, are, I think, three of, the, three of the most active ones. I mean, these are among the densest uh, communities in the Commonwealth, and so some might say not that there isn't room there, but we need to see that kind of uh, uh, attitude or mentality spread more broadly, don't we, to really solve, you know, if, if we're thinking of not just the Boston, you know, housing crisis, but it's really an Eastern Mass, uh, Eastern Massachusetts crisis of of, of uh, housing supply and, and prices. Yeah, so... Of course, there is uh, Engine 6 in Newton, which has been doing some great work, and uh, Walk Up Roslindale. But all across the country, what you say is absolutely a problem um, in general. It's in very high-cost, dense communities, right? Right. So the areas that tend to need it the most are also the areas that um, are the least likely to uh, have an activist group like this. Um, and in general, I think some of our greatest successes are going to come from working uh, at, the, at, at the state level um, where people can agree on broad policies without having to necessarily discuss what's going to be happening on, on the, you know, with the building directly across the street from their house. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to address housing issues like this if every single person gets to sign off on how big, how many people are allowed to live on their street. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at some point we actually do have to acknowledge that, you know, there are potentially uh, ulterior motives to people keeping other folks off of their roads. And the there has been a long history of using state and federal government to uh, override those opinions. And I don't think this should necessarily be any exception to that. Uh, I mean, zoning itself has a pretty long and uh, r- very racist history in the United States. I mean, um, isn't our zoning code 30 years old? Isn't, I mean, that, isn't that what we're working from? <laughs> uh, the last it, time it, it was updated it, it was 30, 30 years, years ago. ago and, right. of course, yeah. it was originally created at a time when it was considered completely acceptable to, by law, uh, restrict um, poor and minority people from living in your neighborhood. Um, in a lot of northern states, we have since written many of the more offensive uh, language out of those codes, but the underlying concept 
and the intention uh, is not only there, but working exactly as designed. And that is something that needs to be fought. And it's unlikely that the people living directly in those neighborhoods uh, would support changing it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't need to be changed. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, so the city government in Boston, uh, Mayor Marty Walsh, has made a big pitch for housing construction and adding the supply, and he set this uh, goal of 53,000 new units. Have you, uh, I mean, is that, have you been warmly received at least by, by city folks? Have, do, they, uh, do you think they're seeing the YIMBY uh, effort as as kind of an allied effort to to get housing built. Yeah, I, I, definitely, because our opinion about being pro um, growth matches uh, the mayor's desire to add uh, those additional units. But the city level doesn't influence the local level as much as as we may think. Um, you know, the local level takes their own opinion and actually has a big. Um, sort of fear of City Hall uh, and, you know, worries that, you know, losing autonomy is is the worst thing to have happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's more, it becomes more of a local issue. Um, and certainly we, you know, I think all of our politicians have taken the time to listen to the YIMBY proposition. Whether they agree with it really, it remains to be seen. Um, big, big changes haven't needed to be made yet. Um, the JP plan the plan JP rocks uh, is not yet um, codified in zoning changes. Mm-hmm. It's a it's essentially the first step of a bigger proposal. Um, so it remains to be seen really what the the outcome will be. Um, I also want to throw in there um, the mayor uh, has appointed an enormous number of um, very very forward thinking, very smart people to work on this plan. Um, Sheila Dillon in particular, I think, has said a, a huge number of the exact right things on this topic. and That's the mayor's top housing uh, director official. Director of housing, yes. Um, and she, uh, she, and I think, you know, honestly, if she was in charge of this um, at every level, uh, we would be getting a lot more of what we wanted. But there have been some key times in this struggle where, you know, policy people we're putting forward a lot of the right plans and saying and expressing a lot of the right concerns. Um, and at those key times, politicians kind of waffled a little bit on their support when I think really they needed to double down on it. And so we ended up with a plan that was, it started out with a very ambitious goal of, you know, 53,000 housing units and a specific number in Jamaica Plain and kind of walked backward from there. Um, and in the process, jeopardizing the possibility of a lot of private um, market rate developments that would have supported a lot of affordability. Um, the people working at the planning department at the BPDA had what I think was a very workable plan to actually get that many housing units built at the start of this process, but political compromise really hampered it. Uh, as as it often can with, often any, can. with anything. So I want to just... Uh, in the few minutes we have left here, a little bit about this, the YIMBY movement kind of writ large. I know that there was, uh, uh, I mean, there are YIMBY efforts in communities across the country, and there was a national conference uh, just last month out in Oakland, I believe, and I know, Eric, you were able to attend, uh, and uh, a few dozen people from Boston area YIMBY chapters. Can you talk a little about what 
what went on there and what uh, what you what you took away from from the national meetings? Uh, yeah, so the Massachusetts Smart Growth Alliance uh, coordinated a grant from the Boston Foundation for a whole bunch of us um, Boston area uh, EMB activists to uh, attend this EMB Town conference put on by Bay Area Forward in California. Um, I hope I'm crediting everybody correctly with that. There was definitely a quite a colorful coalition of people that it took to make this thing happen. Um, but they, they, they put together an excellent conference. Uh, we had representatives from at least 10 different cities, possibly many more, um, although Boston's was by far the largest coalition. Um, we had uh, Minneapolis, Houston, uh, uh, Sacramento, uh, Victoria, Washington, and Vancouver, um, and uh, a whole bunch of others I'm, I'm going to leave out. Um, but it was interesting to see, uh, you know, sort of the similarities and differences in the way uh, the, the way people's communities have received them. You know, one, one of our concerns in the Jamaica Plain group has been that our group is not necessarily uh, uh, racially or demographically representative of the neighborhood we operate in. And I think this tends to be because people are attracted to this movement from planning backgrounds and backgrounds uh, in working for city government and those groups are not representative of their communities. Mm -hmm. Um, But a number of other groups around the country, some of them have um, drawn more from people who started out in the tenants' rights circle Mm -hmm. and found it frustrating that a lot of their other um, uh, uh, activists that they were associating with were not supportive of seeing new buildings be developed for the people moving into their neighborhoods. And so uh, it was really interesting to hear uh, their take on this issue. And we, we spent quite a lot of time talking about uh, inclusivity and inter- intersectionality and how to make sure uh, more people from the neighborhood are actually uh, drawn into this group. So it was interesting to hear some people's perspectives on that. It's definitely a challenge uh, a lot of people have faced and you know there are no silver bullet solutions to it, but uh, it was good to see everybody at least expressing knowledge of the problem and concerns for how to deal with it. And I'm, I may have heard that uh, the conference, the, the national conference is coming to Boston next uh, year. That is probably correct. Uh, nothing set in stone okay. yet, but we are uh, trying to see what we can get organized and we will keep people posted. And uh, maybe we can have a have a bigger YIMBY conversation if, if Boston uh, ends up, in fact, hosting it. Well, it's been a great conversation, and uh, I've learned a lot, and I hope that uh, our listeners have. I want to thank you, Meg Wood, Eric Herrett from J.P. YIMBY, for being here today. Uh, uh, thanks again for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. And you have been listening to another episode of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. You can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time.